Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For news about In Our Time and for recommendations about our archive, please follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoy the programmes. Hello. Plasma thought of as the fourth state of matter after solid, liquid and gas. When we realise that over 99% of all observable matter in the universe is plasma, it makes planets like ours with so little plasma and so much solid, liquid and gas exceptional and all the more remarkable. On the grander scale, plasma is what the sun is made from, and when we look into the night sky, almost everything we can see with the naked eye is made of plasma. On the smaller scale here on Earth, scientists make plasma to etch the microchips on which we rely for so much. Plasma is in the fluorescent lights above our heads, and in laboratories around the world it's the subject of tests that might create one day an inexhaustible and clean source of energy in nuclear fusion. With me to discuss plasma are Justin Walk, Professor of Physics and Fellow of Trinity College at the University of Oxford, Kate Lancaster, Research Fellow for Innovation and Impact at the York Plasma Institute at the University of York, and Bill Graham, Professor of Physics at Queen's University, Belfast. Justin Walk, how does plasma differ from gas uh, at the atomic level? Well, in your introduction, Melvin, you mentioned solids, liquids and gases. And we know that to transition through those three is, is one a transition where you heat things up. Ice becomes water, becomes water vapour when we put it in the kettle. And that works for most substances. For example, iron will melt and become a liquid at around 1500 uh, degrees centigrade and then also become a gas if you heat it up further to maybe 3000. So how does... How does a plasma differ from a gas? Well, we can think of a plasma as being the next stage, as you mentioned, the fourth state, when we heat up the gas. So what is happening to the gas to go from uh, the gas phase into this new thing that looks like a plasma? Well, to answer that, let's look at what a gas is. It's a set of atoms separated in space, so they're, they're a little bit like uh, billiard balls on a snooker table, that sort of separation to, to diameter ratio, moving around at high speed. But if we look at an individual atom, it looks a little bit like a solar system, a tiny solar system with a positive, negative, a positive charge in the centre, which is heavy, and little negative charges, we call electrons, orbiting it. And and those orbiting electrons are held to the positive charge in the middle by the force of electromagnetism, not the force of gravity that holds planets to the sun. But in an ordinary gas, if we look at one of those atoms, the number of electrons, the number of negatively charged particles orbiting the nucleus is exactly equal to the number of positive charges in the heavy uh, centre. And so the overall thing is electrically neutral. If we heat the system up further, and there are other ways of creating plasmas as well that we might explore, the atoms move so quickly that when they bump into each other, they can start to knock off one or more of those orbiting light electrons. Now you have a system where electrons on their own are free to move around in your volume rather than being bound to the atoms. So you have free light negative charges moving around. And because some of the heavy atoms have lost an electron, their positive charge now outweighs the, the rest of the negative charge around them, and they become overall positively charged. So it's now as though we have two intermingled gases, one negatively charged and light, and one positively charged, which we call the ions, and heavy. How does this um, <coughs> plasma... Why does this allow plasma to conduct electricity, and why is that important? Well, it allows it to conduct electricity <coughs> precisely because we have freed the electrons. 
What is an electric current? It is a flow of charge. So imagine putting an ordinary gas in a bottle, and in this bottle there might be two metal plates that you put um, a voltage across, maybe with a high-voltage battery. In an ordinary gas, the atoms, because the positive charges and the negative charges balance out and they're neutral, they don't react in a, in a strong way to the electric field. But if I've already freed the electrons by heating the system up, they are now negatively charged. They're free to move in that electric field. An electric field causes a force on a charged particle. It causes a force on the electrons, which makes them want to move one way, a force on the positive ions that wants to make them move the other. But the electrons, being much lighter, get a far greater acceleration. And that movement of charge, that movement of electrons, is electricity. Fine. I'm going to ask you a very stupid question. Uh, could you give me a short answer saying this? I know what ice looks like. I know what water looks like. I know what vapour when you boil a kettle looks like. Steve, what does plasma look like? Well, first of all, the steam in a, in a, when coming out of a kettle is, is, is actually tiny droplets of the liquid. But uh, it depends. It depends on the plasma because... Um, that you can get light coming out of the plasma. So many people might have seen, for example, these plasma balls that you can buy of glass balls several inches in diameter. And when the electricity, when the electrons pass through the plasma, if there are, they can bump into some some of the remaining ions and excite the bound electrons in those ions. And so, therefore, you can get plasmas of different colours by the um, the positive ions that are left having electrons being excited within them. So, I think we're all familiar with a with um, neon lights uh, and uh, sodium lamps and 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 the northern lights having colours. And that, when you look at the uh, the the northern lights, you're looking at a plasma. Thank you. Kate Lancaster, who first noticed the existence of plasma? <coughs> so in the sort of late 1870s, there was a guy called William Crookes, and he built what's called a Crookes tube, which is kind of similar to what Justin was talking about, which is a kind of glass bottle. At one end, there's a cathode, which is a negative electrode. And at the other end, there's an anode, which is a positive electrode. Now, there are some free charges present at any given time in this very, very low level of gas that's inside the tube. Um, and basically what happens is when you put a current, when you put a, a voltage across this cathode and anode, the, the ions can move towards the, the, the negative uh, electrode and then the uh, electrons move towards the, the positive. Now, when the electrons start to move, they start to crash into more ions, start to um, free more electrons up and you get a kind of cascade. Um, and those electrons then rush towards... Uh, the anode and then the uh, ions then rush towards the cathode, strike the cathode very hard, freeing up more electrons and those electrons escape and, and rush towards the anode and they shoot past because they've got lots of energy, they're moving about 20% of the speed of light. Now what does this have to do with plasma? Well, basically, they were trying to study these... Uh, they mean crooks in this... Uh, yeah, yeah, crooks uh, was trying to discover what they called these cathode rays. They didn't know that they were electrons until J.J. Thompson, a bit later, identified this matter that was zooming past the anode as, as electrons. But because it's an imperfect experiment, ironically, what happens is you've got uh, a bit of plasma present there because... In, a, in an ideal world, you'd want that tube to be a vacuum. But actually, what there is is a very low level of gas. And because you've got this low level of gas, you've created a plasma. Now, 
they didn't know exactly what that was. He kind of termed it radiant matter. So they didn't identify it as plasma and they weren't really interested in it. It wasn't till the early 20s when a guy called Irving Langmuir, who was actually working on um, these kind of lamps like mercury vapour discharge lamps, which are a sort of modified version of a Crookes tube, but with a higher gas pressure inside. Um, He saw this plasma and and tried to understand what it was. Um, He could see this sort of quasi-neutral matter, so balance of ions and electrons kind of glowing and moulding to the shape of the container. And so it's the Greek definition of the word plasma, which means to mould, and that's where this uh, term comes from. So it's in the early 20s where we first see plasma physics emerging as 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 a kind of discipline. Why can plasmas emit light? So um, so Justin just touched on that, actually. So when you've got uh, a gas and it's turned into a plasma, you've got these free electrons and you've got these ions moving around. Now, there are a number of ways in which light can be emitted in that situation. Uh, one way is that some of the free electrons can recombine with the ions that are um, needing some uh, negative charge. And in order to do that, they need to lose energy and they lose energy emitting a chunk of light which we call a photon okay so that's uh, that's what's happening there um another way is uh, if you've got ions and uh, electrons moving by the ion they can be bent by the positive charge of the of the ion and that kind of causes the the electron to lose some kinetic energy it's moving energy so where does that energy go it's emitted as light that's called bremsstrahlung radiation which is a German term called breaking radiation, um, and then there's another there's an, another way in which basically um, the 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 atoms themselves, electrons, can sort of move to higher, more excited energy states, and then decay back to uh, to less excited energy states, and that also emits uh, that emits uh, light, but very specific wavelengths. So some of this produces kind of continuum of light, some of this produces very specific uh, lines. Extraordinary furious activity down there, Bill. Bill Graham, how do you create plasmas in your laboratory? Well, in fact, I go back to the old days. I think Justin uses very sophisticated techniques. He's got these massive lasers which he kind of uh, pumps into different materials and he was just telling me he can make... Um, I think it's aluminium transparent by doing this. Um, and so he, and he's in the process of making a plasma. Um, in my case, we go back to the um, use of two of electrodes and um, we uh, basically pass uh, apply elect- high, ele- high voltages and um, we then uh, accelerate electrons and it turns out we're quite lucky on Earth because we've got a few cosmic rays kicking around, we've got some radio uh, radioactivity and so in fact most of the time you've got some electrons in that volume already, now you apply a field and those electrons start moving and as those electrons start moving, they start what to What do you get... mean by applying a field? Oh, an electric field, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, so, so basically we put a, a positive potential at one end and a negative potential at, at, on the other side. You can imagine that enclosed in a vessel, um, and we have some gas in there. We, we, have, we just connect it up to a battery. Is one way to do it. I was going to mention that a little bit more detail, a little bit more sophisticated in other ways, and I'll, I'll mention that a little bit later. But so we apply this um, field and the electrons start to move in the electric field. As um, Kate just said, the electrons are repelled from the positive anode, uh, attracted towards the positive anode, repelled by the cathode, and the ions start to move the other way. However, the electrons are much lighter than, than any of the ions that we'd have around. They're 
you know, about 2,000 times lighter than anything else. So they're moving, they start to gain velocity. And they move very rapidly through this gas, making collisions with atoms. And when they strike those atoms then, they can excite, they can either excite them up to a high level, and then they decay back, that's your light, or they can actually strip the electron off. Now that you've got two electrons moving, then they go through the same thing. You start to get an avalanche of electrons, two, four, six, eight. And so you start to get this ionization wave moving through the vessel. And eventually after a while... It's an ionization wave. Well, that's because you've got... Um, you're kind of driving these um, electrons and they're moving through the gas, ionizing as they go along. So you're knocking you, the electrons off. Exactly. Yeah. And therefore amplifying the number of electrons, increasing the number of ions and electrons you, that you have in that, that gas. And then you can kind of start to control that because that, the, the, once you start to get enough, for example, positive ions around, that starts to shield out the effect of this electric field. And so then you can kind of get to some kind of um, equilibrium where you're making a, you, you've, you've, the volume has been kind of ionized and it's, uh, it's, it's kind of in an equilibrium and you have then a, 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 a plasma with constant properties. I, mean, I mentioned at the beginning that the Earth is uh, fortunate or we're all fortunate <coughs> that we're not hit by great showers of plasma. Why is that? We're not hit by that because we've got the, we are actually being hit by it but we've got something out there that helps protect us. We've got magnetic fields. Charged particles follow magnetic fields. But it doesn't hit fields. us sitting in the studio. It's it's dissipated. Any... It's dissipated above the Earth. So you have magnetic field. You want to come in, just? Well, yes. I mean, the the thing that's as Bill said that really protects us because we have this plasma streaming towards us all the time from the sun, the yeah. solar wind. And what protects us, as Bill said, is the magnetic field of the Earth. Because the charged particles react to electric fields and can get pushed by them, they also get pushed by magnetic fields in a very strange way, um, deflected in directions you wouldn't expect. But it's the magnetic field of the Earth that pushes most of that plasma around. This is known as, and where that, that, that pushing occurs is known as the magnetosphere. Now, some of the particles do get round. Is this to, because the Earth itself is a sort of magnet? Yes, we are one large, big magnet. And in fact, when we're looking, for example, for extra, for, for planets uh, out uh, around other suns, we're often, or in our own solar system, we're very interested to know if they have magnetic fields. Because one would need to have, one thinks one would need to have a magnetic field to protect, protect a planet in order for, for life perhaps to develop. So, but on the Earth, some, a lot of the plasma gets deflected round. Some of it uh, gets trapped by the magnetic fields. And as if you imagine uh, the Earth as one big bar magnet, the, that, that plasma streams down to the top, to the poles where the magnetic fields uh, lines come together. And that's why we see the northern lights or, or, or those in, in the South Pole as well. That's the, the, that's that plasma interacting with the upper atmosphere. Uh, you all said in your notes that uh, over 99% of the observable universe is plasma. Has it always been the case? No. Um, that's a fascinating story. So first of all, let's um, say that it's true that 99% of the observable universe is plasma, but the observable universe that we see, ordinary matter, is only about 5% of what there is. So I'll qualify that first of all. We but no... There is something that physicists call the Dark Ages. If I mention the Dark Ages, probably most listeners will think immediately of that time between the 6th and the 14th century, when in a very simplistic view we think that the intellectual lights of, of Europe went out. 
But if you say dark ages to a physicist or to a cosmologist, they think of a much longer period of time lasting not just a few centuries, but maybe millions of centuries. We clearly don't have time to go through the whole history of the universe before no, the end of the programme. Sorry about that. Yes. Another time, right? So, but... Just after the Big Bang, just a few minutes after, actually, you had something that did look like plasma. We had hydrogen and helium were created in that process and electrons. But it was a, full, it was a plasma. None of the electrons were combined making a gas. As the universe, as the space, it time, as space itself expanded, the universe cooled. After 380,000 years, it was cool enough for those electrons to bind back on to the atoms, to the hydrogen and helium nuclei, and become a normal gas. And at that point, there was no plasma after 380,000 years. The glow left over from the plasma also started to uh, disappear from our vision, and the lights went out. It went out for something in the region of tens to hundreds of millions of years. How did it switch on again? How did it switch on? And what ended the Dark Ages? It switched on because the universe cooled even more, and the gas cooled even more, till eventually clumps of, of gas, gravity took over, such that if you had a little bit more gas in one place than another, more gas would come and join it, more gas would come and join it, and so forth, and you'd get an effect where you'd get clumpiness in the universe, which eventually led to the first stars and galaxies. And that process took tens or hundreds of millions of years. It's what the uh, cosmologists call reionization. But for that several tens or hundred million, hundreds of millions of years, there was no plasma, there was no light that we could see. It was without form and void, if, if you like. We're back to Tyndall, aren't we? Um, Kate Lancaster, let's now talk about... Could you tell us about the ionosphere, what significance that has? Sure. So, um, basically, Justin and Bill were talking about the fact that we've got a lot of charged particles coming from the sun, and, the, and we're protected by the, the Earth's magnetosphere from, from those particles, largely. But also, there's other radiation coming from the sun, so UV radiation, soft X-rays, and they're harmful to us as well. But actually, uh, there's a unique... Uh, section of our upper atmosphere called the ionosphere which extends from about 60 kilometers up to about a thousand kilometers and the 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 uv and the x-ray radiation interact with the atoms in that layer and they ionize them so uh, release electrons and they turn them into plasma and so essentially that the ionosphere is an, a sort of protecting layer for us actually absorbing some of the energy from the radiation coming from the sun i mean obviously uv does reach us on earth because we burn but but it'd be a lot worse without the ionosphere uh, also, the, ionosph the ionosphere was quite important uh, in the past when, in the radio age, where uh, some frequencies of radio waves actually bounce off the, the ionosphere and then back down, bounce off Earth. And so they kind of, there's a kind of waveguide effect between the Earth's surface and, and the, the bottom of the ionosphere as well. How far away is the ionosphere? So it starts at about uh, 60 kilometres and then ends at about 1,000 kilometres up, so... And there's that. How is it different? Then there's the magnetic field. Is that is that above and beyond the ionosphere? No, actually, there's a bit where the ionosphere and the magnetosphere actually overlap. So, so there is two things sort of uh, uh, coddling the Earth, really. Quite, yeah, absolutely, yeah. and it's sort of protecting us from from the harshness of space. <laughs> really, and do we know why they are? Why that's happened? Well, well, I mean, in in a sense, what what why in what sense? Why we've got those two fields up there. Well, is that because we're a magnet? As, as yeah, yeah. As so essentially, the, the Earth's magnetic magnet, field yeah, sure. is the magnetosphere, yeah. and then of course we've got this ionosphere, which is it, 
is actually the the ionization the degree of ionization in the ionosphere really depends on what time of day it is because it's the sun that's doing yeah. that the seasons and also solar activity so um when there are intense periods of solar activity the ionosphere the, the, the composition of that changes so just that reading about this from the nurse all through it, it became more and more exceptional that we sort of survived the first frazzle right. at all right absolutely back to back to bill graham can you just go into for our listeners and for myself actually but the properties of plasma that make it possible for them to be used in laboratories such as yours for let's say microchips can you go through the process yes I can hopefully Um, so I think I I mentioned earlier on that uh, we make the plasmas by having electrons present and putting energy into them they are the real sort the drivers because of their mobility they can move around quickly they can they can accept energy quickly they can get up to and they can start to disrupt the um, the gases that you have there and you get so we've already talked about ionisation and we've already talked about excitation and so the ionisation you make ion electron pairs in the um, you get in, in excitation you start to get light production as they decay back down also if you've got molecules present you can start to, they'll dissociate molecules and so you can then start to drive a different a, a new kind of chemistry so one of the real um, important things in, in the microelectronics industry is that they're able to create this new chemistry so you can take relatively inert gases and like oxygen and you can then dissociate it and you can make it reactive is this driven by t- technology this is, you know, it's, well, it's, initially, of course, this is all driven by fundamental science. Yeah. But then, for the microchip, then it became very much a technological drive to, to develop that. So there's something called Moore's Laws, which says, you know, that this part, the, the feature sizes on microchips continue to get small. So if you take your smartphone, it's probably been in a, the, the, the chip in your smartphone has probably been in the plasma about 100 times. And what they're doing in there is they're actually... Um, so so the, mic- the initial microchip is a, is a series of layers of materials. So they've got, um, they've, they've got um, conducting materials, semiconducting materials, and insulators. And from those thin layers, they build circuits, microcircuits. And those circuits have now got dimensions of about 10 nanometers. And that is smaller than the size of a bacteria. And they build structures of that size on it, and they do it using plasmas. So the key element is that you have these layers, and then you can um, create those layers because the ions can be accelerated from the plasma onto another, onto a, a surface, a substrate, and it will actually, when it impacts on that surface, it can kick some of that material out of that surface. It's got the that process is called sputtering, and then those atoms move across the, the the plasma, and they deposit on the surface. And you can deposit them one atomic layer at a time. So by because this process is, and, and you can control this by controlling the plasma. So I mentioned that we put an electric field across the plasma. Now that electric field is is it can be pulsed. It can and it can also be um, there can be train, wave trains of pulses that are different each time, and they kind of then you can really tune the plasma to to do what you want to do. So you can do this sputtering, moving particles from one place to another, and then you can also um, have the ions 
um, bombard the surface um, in particular regions and in those regions then you can start to drill holes through the these these layers and you can lay, drill them at very very high accuracy down to nanometer sizes and so then you're so you're depositing layers you then put another layer on top second a third layer on top of that and then what you want to do is you need to make a connection between that top layer and that bottom layer so then you can actually use a plasma to to uh, etch a hole through one layer to the next layer and of course these can be a few nanometers apart so then you can start to build up a a circuit for people like me, that's a, that's a form of magic. And it's almost like rearranging the fundamentals in the universe, isn't it? It's like changing the way the whole thing works. Can I just turn now to Justin? You gave us that uh, brilliant brief history of the beginning. It was. It was great. Um, what role might plasma have, as you've, uh, has been said in the notes, in solving the energy problem and getting limitless almost? Well, limitless, full stop. Uh, you can't force stop limitless, can you? Get on with it. In, in energy. <laughs> right. Well, it, it, this relates back to what I was saying after a few tens or hundreds of millions of years when the lights switched on again, and they switched on because of stars, uh, the gas coming together under gravity, and under gravity that holds stars together. At the centre, we have nuclear fusion occurring, which is when the centres of these atoms of, of hydrogen, the, the, the protons and so forth, come together, are pushed together uh, and fuse. And that releases energy. I think uh, if light atoms like hydrogen, if their nuclei come together, they release energy. I think we're People may be familiar that if you split up heavy atoms, like uranium, for example, that releases energy. But that does so and creates um, a significant amount of radioactivity. So what we'd like to do is use the same reaction in the sun. It clearly works because we're here because of it. <laughs> we also know it works on Earth in the sense that it's been produced on Earth in a hydrogen bomb. But if we could control plasma, because we need to get something extremely hot, hot as the centre of the sun, if we could control a plasma for long enough that we had in the lab miniature suns, we could solve the energy crisis because the fuel for that process, heavy hydrogen we would use, is in seawater and there's other ways of getting something from lithium, which is in every mobile phone. It would be almost a limitless source of energy, but it's extremely difficult to do. Can I turn to Kate? And Kate Langer, well, you, you're in the lab yeah. trying to recreate the sun in your lab without blowing us all up. <laughs> uh, how do you do that? Well, so there's a number of ways of doing it. Um, so one way is to kind of make a magnetic bottle because essentially what you've got here is material at 150 million degrees Kelvin, right? So you're not going to want to touch it, but you want to keep it together so that the particles actually interact. So, so one way is to put this material in a magnetic bottle with shaped magnetic fields so we know that charged particles um, respond to magnetic fields and, um, and essentially um, you can shape... Uh, these fields to make sure that the plasma essentially levitates in this donut-shaped device, which we call a tokamak. Um, so basically within that, you've got this levitate... Well, you start off with a gas and, and you pass the current through it, turns it into plasma. Um, and then you need it to get hotter further. So you can do two things. You can fire radio or RF into it and it um, transfers some energy. You can also fire neutral particles in it, which collide with the particles in the plasma. And it 
all of those things combined raise the temperature to this 150 million degrees. Now, there's another way of doing it, which is where you take a tiny little pellet of the deuterium and tritium, these two types of uh, hydrogen that we're going to use, take 200 of the most powerful lasers in the world and crush the hell out of this tiny little pellet until it's extremely dense. Um, at the same time as the... Basically, when the lasers interact with this pellet, they launch a shock wave which travels in and when a shock wave ca it carries a lot of energy and when that shock wave stops in the centre of the fuel, that's what raises that the temperature of that fuel to the 150 million degrees Kelvin. So there are two ways of confining. One, using magnetic fields. One, just the inertia of the, own, of the pellet. And they're very different because the ultimate aim for the magnetic bottle is you would want to do that and keep, keep confined indefinitely, whereas the laser form is a, an inherently pulsed... Uh, so it's kind of like a, a, diesel, a diesel engine where you compress the fuel until it self-ignites and you do it over and over again, essentially. Bill and Bill Graham, uh, many people will be very excited by the idea of having limitless clean energy and it's something that all three of you talk about as a possibility. How far are we down the track in your laboratory and so on? Um, in my laboratory... Uh we, we, we're much, much cooler than that. In fact, we work with cold plasmas. So, um, I my just needed that spanner in the works to help me along. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> Can we just stick to the mini suns in your laboratories uh, when we get the hang of okay. that first? <laughs> well, um, I, I think that probably um, in terms of getting to break even, I would see that the, that the, the large laser facilities are probably have a better chance of doing that than, um, the, the, than the controlled fusion in, in, inside in the, mag, in the magnetic bottle. But you're um, not giving any data. But, um, I'm going to take you up on cold plasma. I, 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 too but I think, I think it's very important that we, um, that we do keep developing this because it, it really is such a very important potential source of energy. But what about, you mentioned cold plasmas. They must have that day. What, what are you talking about there? Okay, so in fact what we um, try to do is to make plasmas that are essentially at, at room temperature. And to do that, then, we, we play tricks with, as I, I was starting to mention earlier on, with how we actually um, make the plasma. So we make it in short bursts. So we have very sophisticated pulse systems that pulse the plasma. And when we make the plasma, what we're interested in is we make it in a flowing gas. And this flowing gas um, contains um, um, atoms. Those atoms get ionized but they also contain molecules. And those molecules, then, as I mentioned, uh, can be air. So we actually make the, 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 the discharges in air. And you've got hydrogen, you've got oxygen, and if you live in Ireland, it's quite easy to get uh, water vapour in there. And, so, and we also have nitrogen. And so what happens is then we can start to make very reactive species, things that um, have a very interesting effect for example, we can make hydrogen peroxide, which, of course, doesn't seem to be that important because you can make that in other ways. But we can also make um, other things like peroxynitrites and so forth. And these, these can have um, influence how cells behave. They can um, destroy bacteria. And so we're trying to work on making these um, environments where we can use them for um, antimicrobial work and also to explore their effects on different cells. Justin, you wanted to come in. Yes, you were asking how close we might we be to 
to getting some energy. To give some idea of how far away we are, <coughs> if we discuss the laser method, the compression of this little pellet that Kate alluded to, the facility in the world that's geared up to do that is in the United States in California called the National Ignition Facility. And at the moment, they only get 1% of the energy out in the fusion reaction of the light that they put in. And they have to put even more electricity in to get to the light. Now, so it doesn't sound too good, because clearly, if you're getting less energy out than you're putting in, you're going to have a huge electricity bill and not solve the energy crisis. But having said that, over the uh, six or seven years since that facility has been in existence, there's great progress has been made. And we're starting to understand why we're only getting 1%. So the question is, my view is that if the investment was there, one would be able to get the fusion reaction to go. I don't think there's any doubt about that in the sense that if you had large enough technology, as I say, we've created fusion reactions on Earth, but they happen to be uncontrolled in the sense of an H-bomb. So you know technologically it's possible. There is a big question as to whether you could do it rapidly enough to really produce electricity. So, but it's technology rather than the laws of physics that are stopping this working. So more funding in this case? Well, more funding and more thinking. Um, so throwing money at a problem won't solve it on its own, but uh, no, is I always making useful. a plea for more funding. I was just trying to yeah. clarify to my own mind what, what you were saying. Kate, how difficult is it to control plasma? Justin referred to it. You were working with it. How difficult are they to control? Is it to control? Well, um, so it kind of depends what you want to do with the plasma. So, for example... Um, Say I was talking about the magnetic bottle where we're controlling the plasma with these magnetic fields. The problem that we have with the plasmas at the moment is that they become quite unstable. Um, and so we can only control and hold these plasmas for a, a few seconds. And, and we need to be able to hold them for much longer than that. So How much longer? Well, indefinitely, it would be the ideal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, not much longer. Yeah. But but there's a there's a next step being device uh, device being built uh, at the moment. It's in the south of France because physicists like sunny holidays, um, and it's called ITER. And the the aim for that device is to be able to control the plasma for maybe 400 seconds um, and get net net energy output. So so it is quite difficult. But there are physics problems you need to overcome in order to to to, to do these things. Um, and again, with lasers, it's about there. You know, there are there are its own equivalent kind of uh, instabilities and things that, that that kind of mess it up. Which means, you know, we're not quite there yet. So, it's not an easy task. Can we continue with you, Bill? And when you're producing plasmas in liquids, can you tell us about that? Well, of course. What happens when you do that? Well, essentially, um, that's a bit of a misnomer because what we do initially is we. Um, we have to vaporize the water. So, in fact, it's the same procedure that we use for making it in gases, except we generally have to use um, more power, higher voltages, and um, and we actually heat locally heat the water, and it becomes a, a a vapor. And then in that vapor, we can create an electric field, and we start to get um, ionization taking place. There is, um, we pulse it, um, the vapor layer then starts to grow, and so basically this is a thermal plasma, and the, the vapor layer grows, and it has little fingers, and so it moves from one electrode to the other, and as it goes, it kind of is um, uh, creating um, a light emission, and also we get some uh, UV from it, and so this is a, again a way in which you can start to do chemistry 
inside a liquid as well as in it. What, what are the medical applications of this? Well, Sorry, what are the medical applications of well, this? Well, in fact, currently, um, again, because we can get these reactive species there, these uh, devices are, can be used, for example, I think the, the uh, most important example at the moment is if you've uh, torn a, a, a ligament or something or, um, and you need to remove some collagen, the surgeon wants to, 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 to um, sculpt that, then rather than having to use a knife, you can actually go in and use this kind of localised plasma, create it within the liquid close to an electrode, and that's only that... Um, little plasma ends in contact with the um, material and it kind of uses a chemical etching process to um, remove the material rather so than So we're cutting. superseding surgery there. Yeah, and so this is starting to find applications in, in, in other areas and cosmetic surgery and so forth. So. Justin, Justin Walk, uh, how are ex- <coughs> experiments on Earth in the astrolabs, they're called, how are they changing our understanding of what's happening inside the sun? Oh, that's a very interesting question. What we would ideally like to do uh, in these sorts of experiments is recreate in a controlled way bits of the sun in the lab for a short period of time. Um, The famous physicist Eddington said, who can pierce the layers of the sun and go within? Well, of course, we can't, but we can bring the sun to us. So experiments have been taking place for a number of years now where physicists will... um, How do you mean bring this on to us? It's a great phrase, but how do you do it? I mean take a small piece of material and heat it up to the same sort of conditions. So if you only go halfway to the centre of the sun, the temperature is about 2 or 3 million degrees. So it's hot, but actually halfway in, (laughs) the density is no different from the density of ordinary water or ordinary solid. It gets very dense at the centre, but halfway in, it's the same density as normal matter. So that means that if we take normal matter at its density, a thin layer of it, and heat it rapidly, it doesn't have time to expand very much, to 3 million degrees or 2 million degrees, we have something that looks like the sun. It will only last for a billionth of a second, or less than a billionth of a second, because it's going to want to expand rapidly. But what scientists have been doing is looking at how light is transported through that thin layer, because a lot of the way that the sun works, radiation has to escape. We see the outside of the sun, but a lot has been going on within it from the centre going out of these photons struggling to get out. And when physicists who study the sun and want to know how it works, one of the most important properties is how do those photons get out. So experiments in the lab, just recently in fact published in Nature magazine, have shown that the models that physicists have for how that light gets out, how much of it, how transparent that that slab of sun is, is very different from what all of the uh, theoreticians were telling us. And that's aroused an awful lot of curiosity because the difference pushes things more in agreement to how we'd like them to be for the sun. So, yes, making little slithers of the sun in the lab is really uh, starting to change... And radically changing the understanding of... The particular physicist who did that is a chap called Jim Bailey from Sandia Labs in the US. He won this year's big prize in plasma physics and will be awarded it next month for, for that work. And Kate Lancaster, we're coming towards the end now, but could you give us and could you give the listeners some idea of the practical, of any practical down to earth applications for plasmas? Yeah, sure. So obviously we've heard about the the microchips and we've also heard about some medical applications um there are other medical applications of of low temperature plasma for example there's research going on whereby um the sort of 
the the quite reactive nature of the of the the plasma itself and the uv radiation as well that's produced from that can actually cause dna damage in uh, cancer cells like prostate cancer cells for example so it's being looked at as a treatment for prostate cancer for example which is a was a good thing um going to the the sort of laser produced plasmas you can actually drive huge mega amp currents which then result in energetic particles being produced like protons um, and we're looking into how those protons are produced what what the spectrum of those protons looks like and whether we will be able to use those for example for proton therapy for cancer as well so so there are definitely medical applications for these things but we're quite far away from that i will say <laughs> mel towards mel graham towards the end now it seems to me that two things have happened in this in the development of this just from what I've read. One is the Great Royal Society idea, and going back to the Greeks, curiosity, curiosity, men of curiosity and women of curiosity saying, I wonder what happens if, and doing it because they are curious, and not thinking it'll end up in a in a hospital, whatever it is. So that's driving. The other thing is accreted knowledge, the development of technology, the understanding you're on a track to something. Do you think these two things are still in any sort of balance in, in the world you in, 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 in inhabit? No, oh, I'm absolutely certain they are. And um, I think the reason for that is there is a real appreciation um, of the necessity to have this kind of um, this work done, this uh, have the basic research develop the the new processes and we're, we're constantly being asked questions by people I think the main thing that's uh, happening now and that will sustain it is that the uh, the, the, the interest in plasmas has now become uh, multidisciplinary and so I've already mentioned there's a lot of kind of materials people there's a lot of medics and so forth interested now in the application of plasmas so it's a good future for it well, thank you all very much. Thank you, Justin Wall, Kate Lancaster and Bill Graham. Next week, we'll be discussing the 12th century Renaissance in Western Europe, um, new cities, monasteries, universities and so on. Thank you very much for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Well, I, I think what I missed out on, on is actually giving a reasonable explanation of the, of the fact that plasmas are not only kind of... Um, physical phenomena but also they've got real kind of potential as, as a as in chemistry and, and biology and I think I didn't kind of manage to get that across but the the fact that the the plasma not only has, has can, is ionized it emits light but the fact that it can drive new chemistries is very very important because you know what we can do is we can disrupt um, molecules and break them into constituents that they you can't normally do and then have them recombine and, and they form then more interesting and, and new molecules in many different environments. Okay. So and I think the thing about especially about low temperature plasmas as well is that you know you've got your big disciplines you've got physics you've got chemistry and you've got biology and and certainly with low temperature plasma it's enabling the the really interesting science that's in the cracks between those disciplines. It's a truly multidisciplinary uh, endeavour and so science has to change to accommodate that in fact because we all speak different languages. A biologist speaks different languages to a, to a physicist to a chemist so it really requires a different level of understanding to work in those areas as well. I think one thing that is, is interesting that's difficult to get across is how plasmas are so difficult to control and the reason for that or one of the reasons for that is we've you were asking about why do they carry 
or why are they able to carry a current? And we said it's because they have these light free electrons that can move, and that is an electrical current. But as soon as you create an electrical current, you create a magnetic field. Mm. And plasmas, being charged particles, react also to that magnetic field. So they're constantly creating their own currents and creating their own fields, and one's feeding back on the other. You can see this in the sun, for example, with the twisting of the magnetic field in the sun results in these huge bursts of energy being released, suddenly projecting lots of matter towards the Earth. Uh, what they're, they're called coronal mass ejections. And so we didn't get a chance to talk about the fact that often there's, there is this thing called solar weather, just as you know, we might have been listening to the weather forecast for this morning for, for what's going to happen, uh, and then we know well, it's probably going to be rain. But there's a, physicists also have a weather forecast for the sun and its impact on the Earth. Because every now and again, you'll get a huge, not just the solar wind, but a huge blob of matter coming towards the Earth and this, certainly if you're up in the space station, you'd want to protect yourself from, from that sort of environment. So they'll go to a special uh, uh, shielded area if that goes, goes on. But it can affect us here on Earth. I mean, that can knock out power transmission lines across the Earth when those big ejections take place. There was a huge, the most famous event in 1989 where in Quebec, the whole of Quebec went out for about nine hours and six million people were without, without of electricity owing to the sun. And, and so it also mucks up GPS, and we all know that we rely on GPS. So it's very important for us as physicists to have a solar weather forecast. Every now and again it goes wrong. There's a, a case a few months ago when uh, a certain uh, set of forecasters predicted a massive solar storm and that you should go out because you'll see the northern lights that day, and it turned out, in fact, that what had happened is that... Um, a gardener on his uh, sit-on lawnmower had, had, had ridden past the magnetometer a bit too close. So it's like a, an anti-Michael Fish moment, if you like, for solar, solar weather. But uh, it's useful for people to realise that, that, that scientists are predicting these sorts of things that will affect radio communications, satellites, GPS all the time, and taking evasive measures. I think the producer wants to make us an offer we can't refuse. Tea, coffee or any other liquid form. There are more than 700 programmes to download and listen to for free from the In Our Time website, where you'll also find a reading list for this episode.